Okay, you guys grab a seat when you're able. Listen, the book of Acts is a long book. It's 28 chapters. And today we come to the very end of the book. Now, Acts is about joy. It's about the early church moving out, a church on fire, as it were, a church that's overcome with the pressures of an ancient Near Eastern culture bearing down on it. It, the, the church was in a very hostile environment when it first formed, and yet it taught something so profound that it utterly changed in a very short time that brutal society. So Acts, the book of Acts, there's really three foundational purposes of the book of Acts. The first is that the book of Acts is for us a fountain. It's a fountain of joy. The book of Acts is a fountain of joy. It, it helps us understand from what we drive our strength. And you look at the early church as an example. It's a fountain. But it's not just a fountain. It's also the foundation. The foundation of so much of what we understand and believe as Christians. Much of that comes by example through the book of Acts. It is a foundation for us. The third purpose for the book of Acts is it's a framework. It's a framework because without the book of Acts we would be swimming to know how the New Testament fit together and therefore how to rightly appropriate the instruction that Paul gives us. So what is the book of Acts? The book of Acts is a fountain. It's a deep, deep well. It's a fountain for us as believers. It's a foundation for us from which we drive so many of our Christian doctrines because of the example of the early church. A powerful movement of God that utterly changed a brutal society. And lastly, as Kay comes to read, it's a framework for us to help us rightly understand how we are to understand the New Testament. Because through chapters 13 through 28, we have the framework for when Paul wrote his 13 books. So give your attention to God's Word now as Kay comes and reads for us from Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse 15. When they, the Jews, had appointed a day for him Paul that came to him they came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets and some were convinced by what he said but others disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves they departed after Paul had made this statement the Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart have grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two more years uh, at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you take our hearts now and would you massage them by your word? Would you change us, we pray, through this means of grace. In your name, amen. 
Great endings to great stories cause us to ask great questions of the heart. Great endings to great stories. What are the great stories that you read? Well, if you've got kids in the public school, here are the last lines to some of the stories that they read. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Anybody remember that line? F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Most of you read that in high school. You've tried to forget it for 20 years, I know. But it's about the final achings of our hearts to pursue the American dream, beating against the current. Or, as you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. The Tempest by William Shakespeare, the bard in his soliloquy, ends the story begging people for approval and for praise before he exits the stage. Praise me! And then the story can end. Your indulgence, the indulgence of your applause, set me free. Great endings to great stories cause you to ask great questions of the heart. And Luke knows that that's true also. Luke ends this very long book that we've been in for an entire year. He ends chapter 28 causing us to ask a very great question. Paul, in this context, is in Rome. He's finally made it to Rome. He lives for two years at his own expense under the guard of a centurion. And it says that he is welcoming all who came to him, verse 31, and proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and with all, without hindrance. Listen, what does it mean that Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God? What does that mean? How do you get it? What does it look like? That's what we're going to spend a few minutes on this morning. What is the kingdom? How do you get it? And what does it look like? Are you ready? Are you awake? Okay, let's dive in. What, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is a theme that is shot through the entirety of the Bible. And it's shot through the entirety of the book of Acts. Remember back in chapter 1, listen. Every one of you longs for something to help your story end well. Every one of you longs for something. And Luke argues that what causes your story to end well is a rugged, indefatigable, crazy pursuit of the kingdom of God. He starts the book out in chapter 1. Remember? It's Jesus, after his ascension, he presented himself alive, chapter 1, verse 3, after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? About how to have a cool Sunday school? About how to plant a church? About how to pursue the American dream? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6, a few verses later, what did the disciples ask Jesus? They say, Jesus, hey, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? What does that mean? Or in chapter 8, they believed Philip as he preached the good news about what? The kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized. Or verse 14, after being stoned in Lystra by the Jews, Paul returned to Antioch. 
And he says, strengthening the, strengthening the, souls, of the, uh, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter what? The kingdom of God. It's shot through the book of Acts. Chapter 19, Paul encourages the Ephesian elders. He entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. In Acts 20, you get the point yet? The kingdom of God is shot through all the way through the book of Acts. In verse 28, it ends just like it began with Paul teaching people about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, friends, is one of the most important ideas for you to grasp, for you to walk and to mature in your spiritual relationship with God. In your relationship with God, period. It's the most important doctrine for you to grasp. And there's a lot of stuff out there about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It means you should, you know, you should, you know, manifest it here on earth. No, no, no. The kingdom of God is something that is only manifested in the future. It's not yet here. Well, what is it? Well, simply put, the kingdom of God is God's saving activity in our hearts, in the community, and in the world. That is to say that God has a very intentional purpose for your heart. That God loves you individually. And he wants you to understand the gospel personally. But the gospel is not just personal. It's not just you and Jesus, although it's not less than that. The gospel is also you and others. It's also communal. It's how God is causing you to move toward reconciliation with other people. It's how you are ministers of reconciliation, as Paul says, out in a world that is so divided by individualism. But it's also how God is restoring all creation. There's a cosmic aspect of the kingdom of God. So to put it another way, you could say that the the kingdom of God is his rule and reign over everything, over us and over all creation. Or you could say it another way. It is Jesus' lordship over all of life. That is what is meant by the kingdom of God. And Cornelius Plantinga puts it like this in Engaging God's World, a great book which we keep out on the book table consistently because of the impact it's had on our church. It says the kingdom of God represents a final state of cosmic redemption. Ultimately, all of creation yearns as though through childbearing, for its redemption. It's a final state of cosmic redemption in which God and God's creatures dwell together in harmony and in righteousness. It represents what the Jews would say is shalom, flourishing, wholeness, integrity, ultimate victory. But you look around and you don't see integrity or peace or wholeness, do you? You see fracture, and you see brokenness, and you see despair. This is what John Calvin says when he was writing of the idea. He said, for though we are very truly, we hear that the kingdom of God will be filled with splendor, joy, happiness, and glory, yet when these things are spoken of, they remain utterly remote to our perception, don't they? It was the... um, 
they're wrapped in obscurity until they face the day when he will reveal to us the glory that we may behold him face to face. This is what theologians call the already but not yet of the kingdom of God. It's already ours, but it's not yet. It's already ours. It's here, but it's not yet. And you feel this, don't you? you we, we see this tension all the time. In fact, it's shot through all of your favorite sitcoms, and it's shot through even all of your favorite books that we sometimes read, like Charles Dickens, right? The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You hear the tension? It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light and the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Do you feel the tension? We're all going to heaven, Dickens writes. No, we're all going the other way. The tension of the already and the not yet. And into this tension, Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, said, the chief aim of life is the only significance, Tolstoy said, consists in helping to establish the kingdom of God. Okay, well, that's great. How, how do you get it? How do you get the kingdom? Um, not long ago, I came across a journal from a lady named Martha, and um, I, I, don't, I, I don't fully comprehend what she writes about. I just know what she's saying is true. This is what Martha writes. My husband, Mark, sits in his wheelchair, unable to move anything but his eyes. We are approaching the 10-year mark in our journey. It began with a small muscle twitch when Mark was 48 years old. And within a month, doctors diagnosed him with a terminal illness, ALS. We'd been married for 25 years. We had four children. We'd always been a very active family, so Mark's quick physical demise was devastating. When Mark got sick, I fell into a black hole of despair, and I didn't know what I was going to do. You feel the tension? Listen, the ancient Jews felt this tension. And Luke feels this tension. And Luke says to those who are reading his book, Theophilus, and Paul is saying to the Jews in this biblical context that this great salvation has been sent to the Gentiles if they will listen. You know who the Gentiles are? It's not just Theophilus who originally received this letter. It's not just the Jews who are hearing the story from Paul, but it's also you and me. And this great salvation, even when your circumstances seem to say everything to the contrary, is for you. It's for you. The Jews used to cling to this hope. In Isaiah 40, they would say, In the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know how easy it is to get lost in the desert? The gospel hope of the Messiah would give them a road, a highway to the new Jerusalem. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain will be made low. All the injustices of the world will be meted out. And justice will prevail. 
The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. When you're Martha and you've got a 48-year husband, now 58, who for 10 years can't move anything but his eyes, where is that kingdom hope? How do you get it? Then. This is what Mark says. He, he writes um, through a computer that captures his eye movement. I played sports in my younger years, and I've always hated sitting on the bench. And one day after my diagnosis, I thought I was being pulled from the game when I still had something to offer. And God's response was, Mark, you've been on the sideline for a great amount of time. You are just now getting into the game. Already, but not yet. The kingdom breaking through, through your weaknesses. And Mark says, I have found... Listen, he cannot move. Kids, imagine, you cannot move anything except your eyes. And Mark says, I have found that singing hymns and African-American spirituals in my head, because I have not been able to speak for the last eight years, has been helpful and strengthening. He can't speak, but he sings of the kingdom. How do you explain that? The kingdom of God, how does it come to you? It comes to you when you come to the end of yourself. And I beg and pray and plead with the Lord that no one in this church has to experience what Mark or Martha had to experience. I pray that we never have to go through that together. But yet we're able to sing praise to God for his kingdom has come now in your hearts. And it will also be fulfilled when Christ comes again to make all things new. Well, what do you mean? The kingdom is upside down and it's inside out. That's what it looks like. You see it and you hear it in Mark's story. It's Upside down and it's inside out. That's what it looks like. The kingdom, the way up in the kingdom of God is always down. Jesus did not come on a war horse into Jerusalem, did he? He came as a servant, not as a senator. He came on the foal of a coal. He came on a donkey into that city. All throughout Scripture, the way up is not through political triumphalism. It's not through the pursuits of power. It's always through the pursuits of service. And the way that you can actually serve with a kind of joy is because there has been one that has come before us to lay the groundwork for our service and that he served you in ways that you were utterly in need of service. You needed to have everything about your life made clean and whole and new. And Christ came to provide that for you. The way up in the kingdom is always down. And sometimes that comes through us through suffering and loss. And sometimes that comes to us through coming to the very end. of It always comes by coming to the very end of yourself. And sometimes that means a very physical um, circumstance. Other times it's very spiritual. Like listen to Martha. 
She continues to write in her journal. She says, I didn't know how I was going to live through the pain of the coming days with my husband. 58, four kids, can't move but his eyes. I thought, who am I if I was not Mark's wife? And today, I understand the idolatry of that statement and why the despair was so deep. I had identified most deeply with Mark as my husband and provider, and in my eyes, I had put him into the center before God. And now, how I moved out of despair was a mystery. I had no experience of being called forth, yet I experienced, as I came to the end of myself, a sense of resurrection. She's caring for her husband who cannot move. It's been 10 years, and yet she has this incredible sense of peace and this calm. She sees the kingdom. It's manifest right there for her. It's beautiful. And you know what she calls the, um, her journal? She calls it the sweetness of life with God. The kingdom advancement up is always down through repentance. It's not just um, that you move up by going down in the kingdom. Change in the kingdom is always inside out. It's upside down and it's inside out. You move toward repentance by understanding what the law requires of you. Now, hear me very carefully because this gets abused all the time in our area. The, the law of God was given to God's people to point them to what they could not do on their own. It was never meant to be a means through which Christ would become pleased with you if you kept it perfectly. It was never meant to be that. But yet it gets abused and fostered in our life to be something that was never intended to be. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, What does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in all of his ways, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, and to keep the commands and decrees that he's given you today for your own good. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. You are to keep the commands of God. But how are you to keep them? Many of us keep the commands of God kind of like a... Like, we keep it kind of like an employee keeps commands for their employer. Like, we, we go do something hoping that the employer is going to approve of it and give us a bonus check at the end of the year. And the reason so many of us are so frustrated in our relationship with God, quite frankly, is that we are working ourselves up so much to please Him, to do, 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 to listen to this, you know, to study more and to obey perfectly. But listen, sons... Sons don't have to worry about the acceptance and the approval of their daddy. They've got it. Like, imagine that your son or your daughter, you asked them to go and do something, and they never came back to you with the job even remotely completed because they were so afraid that you would reject them if they didn't do it perfectly. You know what that's like? So your son or your daughter walks in fear all the time because they're trying to do it out of a sense of duty to please you, to get your approval. But sons in the kingdom of God do things knowing that the job is never going to be perfect. 
If you tell your son to go get the firewood for this afternoon, and he goes out there and disappears for like three hours, and he's scared, he's huddled next to the stack of firewood because he's scared that you're going to reject him if he comes back with only three, not ten pieces of firewood. Listen, you're never going to obey God perfectly. Can you just say that in your heart? You will never obey him perfectly. But God doesn't take delight in what's done perfectly. He takes delight in what is done in joy and in praise of his glory. Jesus is the one that did it perfectly for you. And so you can come before a father. You don't have to fear the one who will never reject you. You bring your incomplete works to him, and he says to you in love, I love you. In the Institutes, John Calvin says it this way. He says, those bound by the yoke of the law are like servants assigned certain tasks for the day of their master. And these servants think they've accomplished nothing and dare not appear before their masters unless they have fulfilled the exact measure of their task. But sons who are more generously and candidly treated by their fathers do not hesitate to offer them incomplete and half-done, even defective works. They trust that their obedience and their readiness of mind will be accepted by their fathers, even though they have not quite achieved what their fathers intended. Such children ought we to be, to be firmly trusting that our service will be approved by our utmost merciful Father, however small, rude, imperfect they may be. As God says, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, as Malachi says. And you and I need this assurance because without it, we will find ourselves constantly trying to make God love us by our good works. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. If you believe that he died for you, paid the penalty of all your debts, and covers you with his righteousness, you're clothed with his righteousness, and he loves you. And so we are to obey what Scripture calls us to obey. And you are to walk in holiness. But you're to walk in holiness, incomplete though it may be, in praise of your Father who loves you and approves of you. Does that make sense? Friends, it's so important. Because if it doesn't, it will drive you into deeper and deeper despair. And you will be afraid to come to church. And you will be afraid to talk to God because you'll always think that He's angry at you. And in Christ, He's not. He took all of his wrath upon Jesus so that you might be able to talk freely. and You're not going to do it perfectly. Jesus has done it perfectly. And he loves you. And he wants you even this morning to feel the warmth of his embrace as he whispers over you. I'm proud of you. And I love you. And I know. And I'm enough. Lest they should see with their ears, as Isaiah 6 says, and hear with their, uh, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. Have you turned to him? Will you be so bold as to turn to him? One of the ways that this uh, uh, manifests itself at our church is through gathered worship every week. And I know I'm speaking to the choir because you're here. But the vo- those of you who are listening, gathered worship is more than just coming to church. Because what happens at gathered worship is 
far more than singing songs and listening to somebody speak for a few minutes. Jesus is here in gathered worship, and he intends gathered worship to be a break in your week, the holy day of the Lord. Once a week, one in seven, for you to come together in the corporate worship of God to let him meet with his people. This is the only time in our church when we're all together. We're together throughout the course of the week at community groups, but this is it. This is why we have come to plant this church, to manifest the Lord's glory together in gathered worship. And the way we do that at Trinity is through the ordinary means of grace. And Will alluded to it too. Two sacraments and the ordinary means of grace is through the preached word, through prayer, and through the sacraments of the church. That's how the kingdom is manifest. Like, you don't have to go searching for what the Christian education program of the church is like. It's right here in verse 31. Proclaim the kingdom and teach about Jesus. That's it. And the ordinary means of grace are the way that God commands us in Scripture to instruct his people and to help us grow in bold repentance and new faith again and again. And you do that as you respond in repentance and as you come to the Lord's table, as we're going to do here in just a moment. When you come to worship at the Lord's and the Lord's day, you look to Jesus who paid your debts and you bask in his righteousness. You know what the word bask means? Like you know the feeling you may have it right now where you're you're freezing cold and your fingertips are cold and your toes are cold and you've been in a room with no windows all day and you realize that it's summer outside and it's 85 degrees. And you walk outside, and you open yourself up to the sky, and you just bask in the rays of the sun. That's what gathered worship is. And that's why we ought to be here every week. We've committed to be here together, because over time, gathered worship changes you. You may not think it does, but it does. It creates a rhythm in your life so that you're coming again and again and again to admit that your righteousness is not enough. And that Jesus' righteousness alone is what you need. Everyone should make it a priority to be at gather worship. Because it's here that Jesus meets his people through the ordinary means of grace. In the Old Testament, where you saw the kingdom of God declared was always in gathered worship with God's people. And it was a time of cleansing, a time of consecration, consecration and a time of communion. It was a time of cleansing that they would slaughter a bull, and they would allow that blood to be a symbol of God covering over all their sins. And today, we have the same three pattern. We have the same pattern. We don't have to slaughter a bull. Jesus has been the Paschal Lamb who was slaughtered for us. We have a cleansing because of Jesus' blood. And we're consecrated. You were in ancient Israel, and you are at Trinity. You're set apart, made holy unto the Lord. Are you? Do you long for holiness? He calls us to be that. And you're also not just consecrated, but you're also in communion with Jesus, and that's how you become holy. You draw near to him, and you share a meal with him. He communes with you. What happens in Exodus, what happens in the Old Testament, also happens here. The kingdom of God is his rule and reign in your heart and in mine. And what began the great story in the book of Acts, Luke comes full circle to end with it too. Do you have it? 
Don't you want it? Don't you want to be able to have the kind of calm and peace that Martha has amidst the crazy circumstances of your life? And how do you get it? You keep coming to worship week after week, letting the rhythm of the ordinary means of grace shape and mold and contour you into Christ's image. Dickens started his novel with that great line, it was the best of times and the worst of times. And this is another one of the great lines, the great stories that causes you to ask great questions of the heart. He ends his book in The Tale of Two Cities with this statement, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Don't you want that rest in the midst of the already and the not yet? You can have it. Come to the table in joyful repentance, believing in the one who is your righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll help us to see that the kingdom dynamics are paradoxical, that the way up is down, and that change comes from not changing our clothes, not from wearing new makeup or new haircut. The change always comes from the inside out. And Lord, many of us know these things, but we have a hard time doing them. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray now that you will melt us by your love and you'll lead us to repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.